Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In this episode, we will talk about the remarkable results of yesterday's Australian federal election, in which a new Labor government was elected, while the coalition suffered severe losses in inner metropolitan electorates to Labor, the Greens and Independents. My guest today is Kevin Bonham. Hello, Kevin. Hello. So we're recording this episode on Sunday afternoon, and we already know quite a bit about the results. Labor is currently leading in enough seats to form a majority government, but some of those seats could go back to the coalition once postal votes are added, which is going to start tomorrow. Meanwhile, the Greens look likely to win up to four seats in the lower house, in addition to a full complement of 12 senators, and there may be up to 16 crossbenchers in total in the house. Kevin, looking at the map, where was this election decided? So... Overall, nationally, on the primary vote, primary vote changes between the major parties of what usually decide federal elections, and uh, this one's not really an exception. Particularly uh, Western Australia, the serious losses for the for the government in uh, Western Australia. I think it's four seats in Western Australia, maybe five. Um, a swing in Western Australia has often appeared to be on the cards in pre-election polling in the past, but this time it was absolutely the real deal. And like I said earlier, it was very concentrated, not just in urban areas, but inner urban areas that the, um, you know, a bunch of independents won seats in those areas, the Greens won seats in inner urban Brisbane, but also Labor generally gained their biggest swings in inner urban areas, kind of with the exception of Perth, where there's a possibility that Labor will wipe out the Liberal Party in Perth if they can get ahead in more. Um so that, that seems like a big change. Like there's a lot of these traditional marginal electorates that are usually crucial to the deciding of federal elections that just didn't move, didn't move very much at all. You know, Longman, Dixon, Petrie, Bass, Lindsay, uh, all of these kinds of places that are usually considered critical. And it's kind of the folk wisdom of elections is that's where elections are decided. And that was not where the election was decided. The coalition lost enough seats to... Uh put themselves in serious trouble just by um, losing seats to the um, to the crossbench. In terms of the crossbench, at the moment it looks most likely there'll be 16 of them elected, which is up from six at the last election, which in itself was already an equal record. So it's an interesting position in the in the House of Representatives because Labor, you know, they'll maybe they'll get a slim majority, maybe they'll be in minority, but they, they haven't won in a landslide, but they're still uh, probably going to have like 20 more seats in the coalition. Um, which, you know, does does put them at a significant advantage. You know, the coalition has a long way to claw back at the next election if they're going to win. Yes, and the problem has been in the past that once um, crossbenchers get uh, elected, it's very difficult to get rid of them. And so you've got a number of these Liberal heartland seats that have been won by independents, and the question is how the uh, how the Liberal Party uh, is going to ever get those seats back. Also, the Greens in Brisbane also a problem. I think it's also interesting in terms of the dynamics of the next election that Labor will have to answer for the policies of what they have done while in government. And so, but if you're if you're the coalition going, how do we win these seats back? Particularly if Labor's in a majority, you can't necessarily uh, paint those independents with the legacy of the Labor government. So that makes it a lot harder to win those seats back. And it does also remind me, I mean, before this, before the election, we saw that Scott Morrison was pursuing, maybe out of desperation, maybe sort of buying his own propaganda, seemed to be pursuing a strategy of giving up on those seats and going for kind of outer suburbia, regional seats, the kind of red wall electorates. And 
that hasn't really worked. You know, they've they've avoided a swing against them in those seats, but there's no typical Labor safe seats that the coalition came at all close to winning in those areas. Do you think there's any merit in that strategy, or do you think like that was? It just seemed like a bizarre approach that probably made things worse in the inner city. Yes, it seems like it was sort of a desperation strategy. You know, sort of we'll try. We have to try something, and we'll see if this works. They there are a couple of uh, of Labor seats where the um, the coalition is still in the hunt. Um, mm. Gilmore and Lyons, which, but both of those were really down to uh, to candidate factors much more than the the national picture. And uh, in parts of Western Sydney, where um, uh, there was sort of speculation that Morrison's approach was going to pay well. Some of those have seen um, large swings to Labor, particularly um, Greenaway, which was mentioned in dispatches as a seat that might be at risk, has had an enormous swing to Labor. Mm, Yeah, Greenway and Mitchell next to it, the kind of Bible Belt Liberal seat, Alex Hawke seat, also saw a big swing to Labor. One of the things I discussed on my blog before the election was the total amount of the major party primary vote which has been gradually declining, frankly, ever since the 1950s, but dropped below 75% for the first time in 2019. At the moment, it's on about 68%. So that's a big decline. That's more than 30% of the country voting for someone else. Um, And it doesn't quite get reflected in our voting system, right? I mean, these independents have won a bunch of seats, but we may well still have a government that is polling about 32% of the primary vote forming majority government. And I I feel like that's that's going to become increasingly um, untenable and affect the legitimacy of governments if you have these parties, you know, in the way that the UK often has with governments getting elected with a vote in the low 30s. It's, it seems like the electoral system is not really fit for purpose. Yes, Canada's another case of, of this. And you get these, these um, countries where, you know, you get a sort of a... a, a centerish party or even a even a um even a right party that manages to to just win by getting the most primary votes but not getting very many primary votes um and uh the independents seem to um to punch well in terms of converting um vote share to to seats but um and the greens have picked up a little bit but it's still not going to be anything like proportional. Labor's going to have half the seats on the third of the vote. It's basically a, a, a fair summary, plus or minus mm. a few. And, I mean, this election keeps coming back to all sorts of historic comparisons. Uh, I already mentioned the crossbench being so big. Crossbenches weren't really a thing until the 1990s, and even then there might be one of them, two, three, maybe even five, 16 now. Very different. Um also, it's the worst C result for the coalition since the parliament was expanded in 1984, and I suspect probably for a lot longer than that. We'll probably have to go back to like the 1940s to find results that are anywhere near this bad. And we're also going to have a record crossbench in the Senate too. It looks like we're going to have possibly as many as 19 crossbenches in the Senate. Have you had a chance to look at the Senate results? Uh, yeah, I have had a I have had a look at the Senate count as they're developing. Some of them are, are are very messy and have a very long way to go before they will be clear. That especially applies to Victoria, um, but um, 
overall, it looks like Labor is going to have a, a, a pretty manageable Senate. A, a, a possibility is that you have a, a Labor plus Greens plus David Pocock majority. Um, it might even be that Labor can do better than that, but I, I think that's that's about where it's where it's looking. And mm. there's nowhere near, you know, nowhere near a coalition or coalition one nation blocking majority or anything like that, which was the the fear of Labor when they were opposing Senate reform. But it's it's nothing like that, even though Labor hasn't won by all that much. I mean, there's a bunch of seats that are yet to be decided, but there's also a bunch of states where it looks like probably the coalition vote is too low to get a third senator elected. And there's enough Labor and Greens votes to get three elected between them. And that kind of just means there's just a six seat left open. And probably whoever wins that seat might have quite a low primary vote, but just sort of be the last person standing. So that's the case in Victoria, probably in South Australia. Um, Those are the main ones where that's the case. But also the LNP look likely to lose their third seat in Queensland and lose uh, probably lose Erica Betts' seat in Tasmania to the Jackie Lambie network. I don't know. You're a Tasmanian. Do you do you have any uh, thoughts about how that race is looking? Uh, it looks very clear that the Tasmanian Senate, Senate race is um, two Labor, two Liberal, one Green and Lambie network. Uh, very difficult to see anything unsettling that. Um, the question with Abetz is the size of his below-the-line vote, but because he uh, doesn't get any uh, any preferences above the line, he needs an, an enormous below-the-line vote to be elected. He needs he needs something like something like ten percent. I did hear that there was one booth in Eastern Shore Hobart where where about a third of the Liberal votes were um, Abetz BTL, but I don't think that's going to repeat statewide. And in Western Australia, it looks like we may well have a 4-2 split with uh, Labor getting three senators elected, which is another legacy of that huge WA swing to Labor. Um, and that's that's going to be crucial for improving Labor's position in the Senate. Yes, that's a big one. Um, Labor really wanting to get a, a 4-2 left-right split to cancel out the 4-2 split from Queensland last time. And uh, have you looked at the ACT race? Because David Pocock, the kind of progressive independent rugby player, is slightly behind Zed Seselja on primary votes, but it looks like he will do much better out of preferences than you'd expect Seselja to do. Yes, when I've looked at it, it's, it's like he's, he's much too close to, to Cecilia for Cecilia to have any chance of surviving on those numbers or anything like those numbers with the, the, the Greens' preferences and uh, Kim Rubenstein's preferences coming with the amount counted there. I can't see how that can possibly turn around. Now, Kevin, you specialise in analysing what you call the post-count, which is the really close races that drag out over following days as postal votes and things like that come in. What are some of the seats that you'll be paying the most attention to? So I particularly like to look at the at the um, the unusual ones, the the uh, the, the non uh, two party preferred ones, um, where something weird's going on. Um, there's a bunch of close, fairly typical two party preferred ones: um, Benelong, Gilmore, Lyons, Deacon, Menzies, and more seem to be currently the closest ones. There's Brisbane, where there is a battle between Labor and the Greens to see uh, who makes the final two and wins. Uh, McNamara is a weird one because the Liberals are currently 
well behind in third, but McNamara always has an extremely strong Liberal postal vote. And that looks likely to push the Liberals up to the point where they are not far off making the final two. If the Liberals do make the final two, then the question is which of Labor and the Greens misses out. There are also a few other seats that have to be realigned because the wrong candidates were picked on the night, and some of those I'm watching, but uh, it doesn't look likely in those cases that the independent or crossbenchers running is going to get up. We've had a record high postal vote. They've just started counting postal votes this afternoon. I just saw a sample suggesting Libs are winning the postal vote in Benelong by about 54%. Um, but we're just getting small samples today. Maybe that will tell us a little bit, but we're going to get the bulk of it tomorrow. So hopefully that tomorrow will clarify a lot of these results. Yes, and it will be interesting to see the general pattern on postals as as compared to last time. When you have, with, with a, a greatly increased postal vote, it's possible that the advantage to the Liberals on postals will reduce somewhat, particularly as the postal count goes on, because late postals are often uh, less favourable than uh, than early postals for the, for the Liberals. And if that does happen, if there is even a slight shift in that behaviour, then that could stand Labor in, in good stead in a number of these very close seats. Well, what's your take on where the coalition goes from here? Because they uh, lost a bunch of seats in the kind of moderate heartland. There's a big argument happening now about mo- whether they need to moderate, whether they need to change their position on climate change. But we're also seeing some pushback from the right saying, oh, they, they moved too far to the left, which I think some people would find completely ridiculous. It's going to be interesting to see what approach they take for the next election because maybe there are other seats they can pick up to make up for some of these seats that they lost last night. But uh, I don't think they'll be able to do it all on its own. Like they, they can't go without, you know, basically holding practically no seats on the north shore of Sydney. Yes, this is a big problem. If they can't work out how to recover these seats from independence, then they will have to look outside these areas and look at what they can do to pick up the seats that uh, that Labor uh, has won, you know, the, the, the classic marginals. And I, I don't have a view on that at the, at the moment, but it, it seems that, that this is a, a, a very serious uh, new problem for them that they just don't appeal in the in the inner cities and that opponents have found a way to get rid of them in the inner cities. You know, the whole landscape has just completely changed and, yeah, it's not obvious at this moment what the way back is. And it's changed the policy landscape of the country, right, without necessarily changing what issues the national electorate cares about. If we all of a sudden have a bunch of swing electorates with, you know, people are really concerned about climate change and concerned about a bunch of these social progressive issues and really want an ICAC or whatever, that's going to change the way that national debates happen. And I feel like we saw this coming in this election, but both of the major parties, quite frankly, were very stubbornly focused on the old paradigm of focusing on, you know, Labor's putting a lot of effort into central Queensland, Morrison trying to um, just sort of stick his head in the sand and ignore the idea that all these seats might get lost, you know. He was out in Parramatta and places like that, Werriwa, on just before the election. A lot of the, the, the sort of the issue landscape, a lot of it came up at the last election too. And there were all these polls saying, you know, sort of climate change is the number one issue of this election and uh, Australians are really very left-wing and all this kind of stuff. And 
it didn't materialise in the voting. And I think we got so used to uh, these these patterns not delivering in the in the voting that when we have an election that actually looks like that, it's very very unusual. And that was the you know the amazing thing of last night was that the you know sort of all these things were for once actually true. Um, you know, voters did care greatly about climate change and integrity and things like that in enough places to uh, to throw the government out in this resounding fashion. Yeah, I mean, there's been talk about these kinds of seats, these kinds of demographics for decades, right? Like we think about the doctor's wives in the 2000s and who were concerned about refugees on the North Shore. And there, there were people like that and they probably switched their votes over it, but it was never enough to actually change who held those seats. And so it is something that I think people have been talking about, some people have been working towards for a very long time and it reached some kind of critical mass this year and it sort of, the wave has dumped on top of all of us. Yeah, yes, and I feel that the way um, Australian politics is conducted is just not going to be the same again because of this shift and this this um, sort of rejection of, of, of old methods. And now that you know, sort of certain perspectives have to be um, have to be taken seriously by by both parties. When, when I, look I look at that major party, party primary vote, vote, and I look um, at that, that wave of candidates getting elected, and a government getting elected without a great deal of enthusiasm for the new government, really, I I'm probably getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but people just assume that these political parties will be with us forever, and like. Other countries have a lot more political volatility than Australia has. They have a lot more diversity of parties. The old parties die and go away. Things like that can happen. Um, I'm thinking now of the quotes that John Howard gave when he was visiting some of those teal seats saying, you know, I understand you're disappointed in the party, but if you love the Liberal Party and you want the Liberal Party to be better, blah, 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 this kind of stuff. And it's like, I don't think any of these voters really care about the Liberal Party. Like there's, there's particular kind of principles they care about, things they would like to see in their elected representatives. Um, but the actual institution of the coalition, the Liberal Party, I don't think most of those voters have particular fondness or care either way about it existing. Yes, I think some of these voters have sort of aversions to voting for, for Labor. They, they, you know, they have aversions to sort of um, um, you know, might, might even be class-based aversions to voting, voting for Labor or voting for the Greens. But when an independent comes on, an independent can come along and, and run a, um, a perspective that's not very different from Labor and, and the Greens and that's even in some ways more radical than Labor, at least certainly on, on climate issues. And these, these Liberal voters are not sort of consistently right-wing in their attitudes. They've been, they've been voting uh, uh, Liberal by default because there was nothing better. Can I talk briefly about the Queensland Greens? Because the Greens overall did have a good result. I think it's a encouraging result for Adam Bant's leadership. You know, they, they polled very highly. They're going to win six senators for two elections in a row. Uh, they will have more senators than any minor party has ever had. Um, but those lower house seat gains are all in Queensland. They did well in Richmond and McNamara as well, but all of them are in Queensland. It's an interesting turnabout for a state party that used to be kind of the weak part of the Federation of the Australian Greens that I think back to 15 years ago, the Queensland Greens basically didn't have any elected representatives. They don't have an upper house with proportional representation. They don't have proportional representation at local councils, but they've um, they've put in the hard yards 
and they've kind of gotten really good at marginal seat campaigning because they don't have any PR. They only have single member electorates and now they've got, you know, a councillor in Brisbane City, they've got two state MPs and now they might have as many as three federal MPs. And it is interesting how they've managed to do that transformation from the state of where they were in the Greens a couple of decades ago. Yes, even the growth in sort of like the last few elections in Queensland has been quite remarkable. Maybe in Queensland there was a bit of a, a hole waiting to be filled because you know, federal Labor had that terrible result last time. And yes, it's, it's just they've, they've just got very good at, um, at mobilising in, um, in the inner city in, in these particular seats so that when the, uh, when the coalition vote collapsed, it's gone straight to them. And also, you know, also they're taking, taking votes directly from Labor because people just not seeing the point of voting for Labor in, this, in these seats. I think that the Labor, um, a lot of the Labor rhetoric about the, against the Greens in this uh, election was uh, very silly. Mm. To, to remind listeners, there was a lot of talk from Labor, you know, Justine Elliott, who's the member for Richmond, who was under threat, looks like maybe she's just barely scraped by um, Terry Butler as well. They were going out there and saying, if Labor doesn't win 76 seats, we will not be in government, which I think we can all agree is pretty silly. You know, it's a little bit of a stronger line than what was the typical Labor line, which is we won't negotiate over deals over forming government, which I, I don't think they need to at this point. They have plenty of options in the lower house. And, you know, they, they had core flutes in all these electorates that were saying the only way to change the government is to vote one Labor, things like that, kind of exaggerated things. And in a context of Labor winning 32% and really just being the biggest of a number of progressive forces defeating the coalition, it does look particularly silly. But I can see also Labor really wants to defend their monopoly of being the only people who can form progressive government. Because if they lose that, I feel like they lose a lot of their raison d'etre. One other thing about Queensland Greens in particular as well is the Queensland Labor Party in state politics uh, is a lot more you know, pro-coal, a lot more invested in the resources industry than maybe some other Labor parties are. Um, you know, turns out federal Labor doesn't need central Queensland to win, but probably that's still the case for state Labor. They do need to win those uh, some of those central Queensland town electorates. And so you've got this state Labor government that's in power, has been in power for a while, has some controversies, is pretty conservative for a Labor government, particularly on kind of environmental climate issues. Like, of course, that's going to maybe play into how voters in the inner city vote when they consider their options of Labor and the Greens is, you know, in some ways... Are we getting to a point where Labor's attachment to those regional coal industry electorates could actually hurt them in the inner cities just as much as their uh, association with the Greens hurts them in, in the regions? It's a big problem for Labor in Queensland generally that you just it's hard for a party to set policy for the whole of the for the whole of that state because it's so diverse. And the Greens don't have that problem. The Greens can, can pitch directly to the inner cities and, and they're fine. But Labor got a lot of trouble last time for walking both sides of the street on some of these things. And, yeah, so it may it may well be that there's a bit of a, a, a dissatisfaction with state politics underlying some of this as well. Well, it brings me back to a general point that I've been making, which is, you know, this, this outgoing coalition government very much has had a national party that... Um, has asserted itself and kind of overemphasized the importance of the regions in terms of 
how politics works. And now, you know, I mean, probably Labor Labor will get the majority and so it won't quite come into play, but we now have this large assertive block, not so much that they're like campaigning for the cities. That's not really what their agenda is quite about, but they believe in particular things that are more popular in the cities, those sort of policy politics ideas. They're probably going to be more assertive than than your typical major party politician from the cities about taking a stand on those issues and going to put pressure on Labor to... Um, kind of answer to their demands. Yes, it's going to be fascinating to see question time under the new parliament because mm. you presume that the, the size of this prospects, you're going to have to they're going to have to give them a decent number of, of questions and uh, they they won't necessarily be lying down on things by by any means. Um. I know they don't want to be a political party, but this is where political parties first formed, right, was in parliaments to organise themselves. Groups of independents got together. I mean, the whole crossbench can't be lumped in together. You've got four Greens. You've got Catter and Diley. They kind of put them off to the side. And uh, But, you know, the Zali Stegall, Helen Haynes, Rebecca Sharkey, the one, two, three new ones elected New South Wales, the two in Melbourne and the one in Perth. So that's nine crossbenchers, if I've got my numbers right. I'm missing someone. Um, Andrew Wilkie. Andrew Wilkie. Wilkie's a little bit different too. But there's nine there who are very much the teal independent climate concerned group. Do they organize together? Probably they don't elect a leader, but probably they should have meetings. They should talk about legislation, cooperate. You know, like they each have a couple of staff. They'll be far more effective in parliament if they can work together. And so I think there will be a strong incentive for them to organize as a parliamentary party, even if they don't want to call themselves that, and even if they don't run in elections as a party. There may be things like for points of parliamentary procedure and so on where it becomes effective for them to, to organise as at least some, some kind of uh, informal group where there are um, people with responsibilities for, for doing certain things. It would be, be, uh, be interesting to see how, how that plays out. Whether it does end up eventually turning into a party, I don't know. Well, I mean, it's so much work being an independent, being across every policy area and every bit of legislation, using your staff to be across it all. That's why we have portfolios. That's why people cooperate, right? They don't all have to be policy experts on every issue. And I think they'll find that helps them. One other thing, and we, we probably should wrap up in a sec, but Adam Bant has always had a kind of relationship with the crossbench that while he is a member of the Greens and obviously he sits with his colleagues in the Senate and they all work together, he, he's also also been able to kind of just present himself as one member of the crossbench. And I think now that there's four Greens, they'll be their own little block a little bit more. And that, I'm sure they'll find ways to cooperate with the rest of the crossbench, but they'll have their own agenda and maybe will seem a little bit more distinctive. Yes, they'll sort of stand out because of their being... Because there being more of them, and because of the, but because of them being a small component of the crossbench compared to all the all the teal independents, they they will stand out more. Another thing about the dynamics in the house will be, say, Labor falls two seats short of a majority, and they need a couple of votes to get things passed. I'm sure at times Labor would prefer to do deals with the teal independents to get legislation passed, but the teal independents don't have any senators. The Greens have 12 senators, you know. If you can come to an agreement with the Greens in the House of Representatives to pass a piece of legislation, then you're pretty much guaranteed to get it through the Senate. So in a sense, even though they're a smaller number of a big crossbench, those Greens MPs will probably be more crucial if Labor falls short of its majority because they're a package deal. They get you through both houses. 
Yes, we saw. Yes, we saw saw the importance of that. I think a lot in the Gillard years. And yeah, the the Greens are going to have far greater power in, in the Senate because basically um, anything that is opposed by the coalition, Labor needs the Greens on. Uh, mm-hmm. the, they some they'll need more. They'll probably need more than just the Greens. But but the Greens are absolutely crucial. Labor has no other path to getting things through the the Senate. But not much more than the Greens, though. Like it's not like two thousand and eight where Rudd needed. Greens and Xenophon and Fielding, very diverse. Like, of course he went to work with Malcolm Turnbull on passing climate legislation because there was no real alternative, whereas um, there probably will be this time. You know, someone like David Pocock should fit in quite well with whatever, you know, anything the Greens and Labor can agree upon, I think Pocock is probably on board with too. Yes, and and if not Pocock, then Lambie on on some things maybe. Um, We still have to see who else might turn up but there's plenty, yes, there's plenty of options there for Labor to work with. What happens next from now? It's this Sunday afternoon. What what should we be expecting to happen next with the count? Over the next several days, we'll have counting of postals, and gradually some of these, um, some of the remaining two party seats will, will fall into the wind basket for one side or the other. The, some of the uh, more complex ones will probably have to wait two weeks until they uh, distribute preferences, unless the AEC does some kind of special counts for them, which it sometimes does near the end of these processes. So, uh, yes, we'll be mostly following that and also following the Senate counts, which will unfold over several weeks. And at some point, we'll find out if Labor has a House of Reps majority in the next week or two. The AEC might need to start thinking about some, doing some three-candidate preferred counts. Yes, I think in um, Brisbane, is a, Brisbane is a classic example where you, you really need a three-candidate preferred count to say what's going on at the moment. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Kevin, for joining me. Very welcome. So I'll be producing quite a bit of analysis on the election results over the next few days, so stay tuned. And I know that, Kevin, you'll be covering the post counts as they come in. Um, you can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music here in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.